That's the most rousing introduction to Plan B that I have ever heard in my life. Thank you. Let's turn to the scriptures. Acts chapter 9, long passage, 25 verses. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen, my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings, and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. And then a postscript. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once... He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished 
and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Now you can call this sermon Plan B, and I'm okay with that. I prepared it a couple of weeks ago to preach at our evening service today. And on Tuesday, when I had my weekly meeting with Pastor Matthew, I learned that COVID had once again visited his home. So I rather innocently asked about plan B, just in case he couldn't be here this morning. Well, on Thursday, he called me to tell me that plan A was not going to work. So here we are. It's not a Mother's Day sermon. It's not a sermon based on the services of Stephen ministry. And it's not a sermon based on the series in May from Luke chapter 9. Now, we do hope to be back in Luke 9 next Sunday morning. Today, instead, we're having a post-Easter sermon. And I just realized it's also an introduction to the mission's focus of next Sunday as well. So, please listen to see what God might be saying to you this morning through plan B. After Easter, after the resurrection of Jesus, when you look at the rest of the New Testament, there's quite a lot of focus on people who had encounters with that risen Christ. And of those many encounters, the one that I think is the most dramatic is the one we just read with the man we know as the Apostle Paul. It's clear to me from Scripture that God has a plan and a purpose for every one of his followers, everybody who belongs to him. And in the next few minutes, we're going to look at the first half of the life of one of those people. Perhaps the greatest sinful person who's ever lived? In this passage, he's called Saul, but we know him as the Apostle Paul. And I want you to think with me now about just the first half of his life. Think first about Saul the person. Who is he? What are all the things that God put into this person before this encounter in Acts chapter 9? His roots... Well, they're in the Greek culture, in the country of Turkey. His city of Tarsus, well, that was less than a mile from the Mediterranean Sea. And it, it was a university town. Now, the city produced famous philosophers and teachers and poets. And from a sermon that Paul later preached in Athens, 
we know that he learned Greek literature while he was growing up in Tarsus. From his various writings, we know that he became skilled in using logic. We know he would have been fluent in Greek because that's the closest thing to a universal language there was in his generation. So in like, like so many other people, this man was bilingual, something I greatly admire. So you can think of Saul as Greek, but he also had another great asset. He was a Roman citizen. Uh, usually Roman citizenship was something passed down from generation to generation. It was hereditary, so likely his father was a Roman citizen as well. The great advantage. Now, a few people had citizenship bestowed on them, and a few were able to purchase it. But however you got it, if you somehow ended up with Roman citizenship, it gave you special treatment all through the empire. For one thing, it guaranteed that you would never be scourged, you would never be crucified, no matter what crime you committed. And it gave you the right to appeal to the emperor if there was a judgment against you that you thought was wrong. Paul, in fact, used that at least twice. Once when he was in Philippi and another time when he was in Jerusalem. It seems very likely that this man was also a member of a family that was wealthy and respected in the community. So when you think about his total background, it's really good. He had a lot of advantages. Now, I need to say something about the religious heritage that he picked up also. He was born a Jew. More particularly, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And of all the 12 tribes, the tribe of Benjamin seemed to have a special place in Jewish history. Now, there were various religious parties among the Jews, and of those, Saul identified with the Pharisees. Now, Pharisees, influential people. Uh, they made a real contribution over the generations to purifying and preserving Judaism. And you know from the Gospels that Jesus had more interaction with the Pharisees than with people from any of the other groups. And from their contact with Jesus, you get a sense that the devotion to God the Pharisees had, had by his time become rigid and formal and legalistic and cold and proud what had probably been at one time really a wonderful type of Judaism had by the time of Jesus become a real problem. So for Saul to be a Pharisee, that's something of a mixed bag in his life. What else can we say about it? Well, vocationally, he became a rabbi. It's likely that when he was still a child, a grade school student, that adults saw potential in this man and that he in his synagogue as a grade school child would have learned Hebrew, a second language along with his Greek. His Bible would have been in Hebrew, 
but he would also have studied the Greek translation, the Septuagint. So even his Bible was in two different languages. Teaching? You wouldn't have liked the teaching method. It didn't vary. It was always the same. The teacher would read a passage. The students would try to give it back over and over and over until they had it memorized. So his first stage of schooling would have ended at about what we think of as 15. And when he was 15, he was shipped off from Tarsus down to Jerusalem, many, many miles to the south. And there we know that he had the privilege of having one of the greatest teachers of the day, a man named Gamaliel. Under Gamaliel, he would have continued to study the Hebrew Bible, and that would be supplemented by all the commentaries that had been written by Jewish scholars down through the ages. So he's trained to be a rabbi. However, rabbis did not receive a salary. So he also needed to trade. And we know that leather was a thriving industry in Tarsus, so he did the obvious thing. He learned to become a tent maker like so many in his hometown. In summary, by adulthood, this man Saul had experienced the providence of God in ways that made him a well-rounded, well-prepared young adult. We can see that an exceptional person was being prepared by God for exceptional responsibilities. I'm trying to think, anybody else like that in Scripture? Well, Moses comes the closest in my mind. Moses, 1,400 years later, earlier, had had great preparation for his work as the Old Testament Messiah. So we've been looking at Saul the person. Now we're ready to look at Saul the persecutor, because that's what Acts is all about in these early chapters. We first hear of this man in Acts chapter 7, in the passage where one of the first deacons, Stephen, was stoned to death and became a martyr for Jesus. Luke, in writing Acts 7, says they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the story of Stephen. So it's pretty clear that Saul is in Jerusalem. It's Passover time when this happened. And my hunch is that Saul was an eager, young, brilliant person wanting to participate in all those arguments that others were having with Stephen about this Jesus, this Jesus who over and over claimed that he was the Messiah they've been waiting for. So we can think of Saul as about 30 years old when he's at the height of opposing Christianity. And the death of Stephen in Acts 7 
touched off strong persecution of all the disciples in Jerusalem, and many of them fled the city at that point. The next chapter, Acts 8, says that Saul was leading the persecution. So he went from being the young man taking care of the coats to the leader almost overnight. The text says Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Boy, this man is zealous. He's determined to stamp out this new religion. He wasn't satisfied just to send Christianity underground in Jerusalem. He's going to do anything it takes. He's willing even to go 140 miles north to Damascus to see if he can find some more of those Christians to stamp this religion out before anything else happens. That brings us to Acts chapter 9, the passage we read. Probably took a week for Saul to walk 140 miles. I wonder what he was thinking about. That's a lot of time to walk and think. I can't really know, but there were certainly a lot of things that had happened to him recently that were unsettling. You know, he kept hearing about Jesus. All those reports about the remarkable life of that man. And then his crucifixion, that should have been the end of it. But instead, a whole lot of people had become convinced that this Jesus had come back to life from the dead. Paul had to be thinking about that. And then there were those apostles, that inner circle. No, they were scared at one time, but now they're so confident. And they seem to be doing miracles. How can that be? And it's not just the inner circle. There are all those ordinary followers of Jesus. The reports about them are disturbing, too. They're, they're really motivated. And their boldness in speech is amazing. And now Stephen. Ah, it's not just what he said. It's the way he died. He had peace even when he was being executed. Now, in addition to some of those things, I wonder if he was also thinking about Gamaliel. Gamaliel, who had had such an influence in his life. And yet, what Gamaliel said about these Christians was disturbing. In Acts 5, Gamaliel says, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. That was Gamaliel's advice to Saul. Was it right for Saul to go against that? Well, Saul wanted to please God by persecuting the Christians. I'm sorry, Gamaliel, I part ways with you on this. So I don't really know what all the things were Saul was thinking about for that week. 
But it seems likely to me that God did do some preparation in his life leading up to that dramatic encounter that we read about. And when God spoke to Saul on the road, it was described as a graphic confrontation. Paul described it later in Acts 26. He said, we all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So far, we've looked at Saul the person and Saul the persecutor. Now, just a bit about Saul the persuaded in Acts 9. Because our scripture reading really is describing an intervention. In the last 20 or 30 years, we've learned intervention is when you confront somebody who needs to address his addiction. This was an intervention that was very, very powerful. It says that Saul was traveling at noon. He didn't normally travel at noon, but he was so intent on continuing his persecution of Christians, he didn't even stop for the normal siesta during the hottest hours of the day. And that intervention started with a light from heaven. Years later, when Paul was reflecting on that, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he said, have I not seen Jesus the Lord? Our passage in Acts says, the whole group fell to the ground, they all saw the light, and the others got up quickly, but Saul stayed down, and only Saul saw Jesus that day. And Saul heard the voice. The text says in Acts 9, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must go. Those three words, I am Jesus. That must have been a shattering experience instantly. In that moment, Paul's whole worldview came tumbling down. Jesus was alive. Jesus is the Messiah. Everything I've been teaching is wrong. <coughs> well, this is conversion. Turning someone around so that he sees Jesus the Messiah. And all of his distorted ideas were brought into focus so that he recognized the Christ. For Saul, it was the new birth. It was the Holy Spirit making Saul into a new person, one who had been born from above. Now, there were side effects. He was left blind. He was helpless. He'd always been spiritually blind, but God gave him three days to learn what helplessness really meant. And the confirmation of this amazing intervention 
is described in verses 10 to 19. Two more visions. Saul had a second vision, and in this one, he saw a man named Ananias come to him and restore his sight. In the other vision, God spoke directly to Ananias, and he gave Ananias a mystifying assignment. As the story unfolds, we see Saul being commissioned as an apostle, and surprise, his primary assignment is not to the Jews, his own people, but to the Gentiles. Verses 17 to 19, Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming, has sent me so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit immediately. Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, when the hands of Ananias were placed on Saul, the Holy Spirit took control of his life. And Saul could see again, and immediately he was baptized into Jesus. We can summarize Saul's whole conversion experience like this. He began trusting Christ. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was baptized as an outward expression of what was happening, and he was given a work assignment. So, after all that, how shall we conclude? We've looked at Saul the person, Saul the persecutor, Saul the persuaded. <laughs> well, we may not identify very much with those first two. Saul the person, Saul the persecutor. Uh, we're not Saul. He's a different person. But I hope that we identify with this third quality. Saul the persuaded. The same Jesus who met Saul on the Damascus Road is the God-man who persuades people in the year 2022. As people who've met Jesus, as people who've been persuaded by him, we're now to be his followers through the rest of this life and right on into eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, there are times when you're just filled with surprises, when things that we wouldn't anticipate and nobody else would either, that you would take this feared Saul, this hated Saul, and make him one of us. God, if you could change him, you could change us. You could change anyone. Lord, that's what we want. We want to be changed. And we want our family members to be changed. And we want our neighbors to be changed. 
And we want the people in our communities to be changed. And we want the world to be changed. God, make it happen. In Jesus' name, amen.